Meat. Meat. Hi and welcome to Car. This fourth episode is all about meat. With the global population running at about 7 billion, these days we're a pretty hungry planet. From famine at one extreme to fad diets at the other, food is a hot topic. Carnivores will often argue that we superior humans are at the top of the food chain for a reason. But in Terry Bisson's short story, They're Made Out of Meat, we're reminded of our resemblance to our fleshy friends. Machines. So, who made the machines? That's who we want to contact. They made the machines. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Meat made the machines. You're asking me to believe in sentient meat. I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. These creatures are the only sentient race in the sector, and they're made out of meat. I thought you just told me they used radio. They do, but, but what do you think is on the radio? Meat sounds. Y- you know how when you slap or flap meat, it makes a noise? They, they talk by flapping their meat at each other. They can even sing by squirting air through their meat. Terry has said that the story was in part inspired by Allen Ginsberg's retort to an interviewer who was waffling about their souls communing. We're just meat talking to meat, he said. Not content with differentiating ourselves from fellow animals, we're often at pains to draw distinctions amongst ourselves. Meat is often seen as a marker of prosperity, a sign of luxury and extravagance to demarcate the haves from the have-nots. It's also often presented as a man's food, as feminist theorist Carol J. Adams has argued in The Sexual Politics of Meat. And it's not hard to find examples in advertising and popular culture that support her argument. I am man, hear me roar, and numbers too big to ignore, and I'm way too hungry to settle for chick food. Later on, Susanna Wirth and Carlos Monleon Gendal visit speculative designer James King to talk about lab-grown meat and what the future holds for the steak. But first, a tale inspired by a trip to Prague, where the cuisine left a little something to be desired. A Prague meat-amorphosis. Franz had woken that morning with an indistinct sense of being out of place. He cowered in his matchbox of a room on Bielkova Street until dusk before eventually summoning the strength to lurch out of bed and into the evening. He sloped past shops glinting with row on row of ashtrays, shot glasses and trashy postcards, everything to attract the most dismal kind of tourist. Franz hummed an apotropaic tune warding off the menace of yet another stag party, stumbling out of an apartment block on Masnadvair. These men hunt in packs. 
Cutting away from the square, Franz set course for the new town. He could smell the sucking flesh-eaters of Wenceslas Square long before he reached it. Here the corpulent creophagists of Prague congregate to devour ham-stuffed piglet and hog-killing soup with tripe. Klachenka is a specialty made from boiled pig's heads, legs, liver and various offal, left to congeal in a pig's stomach. Everything but the squeal. Oozing brown mustard, horseradish, onions, vinegar and rich sour cream sauce top it all off. The chthonic stench bloomed in Franz's mind, in a nightmarish unison with a vision of Goya's squatting Kronos, gnawing on the bloody stumps of his own son. A smoked pork knee, doused in dark beer, spit-skewered and dripping, exchanged hands for a hundred and fifty kroner, while the men who market the city's population of PVC-glazed prostitutes gathered in the square for their nightly sales pitch. One hour for the price of six pork knees. Trafficked from Latvia, Slovakia, Bulgaria or Romania, these women are on lease for 45,000 kroner per month, tricked into turning tricks to pay their way. Men were starting to stride along the paving slabs, bellies first salivating in anticipation. Franz leaned over to rescue a fly from flailing in a tankard of Staropraman. Something at his core had reached breaking point, and he felt more affinity with the pitiful insect than with his own noxious species, or at least those he encountered in this belly button of Europe. He longed for some kind of defensive armour. A chitinous exoskeleton might do nicely. Heading southeast down Wenceslas Square, Franz was distracted by the old bookshop and absent-mindedly turned one street too soon. Somehow finding it easier to keep going forwards than to turn around, he decided to continue up Stepanska and reach his intended turning from the other end of the street. He walked past a Chinese restaurant, complete with gristle-filled picture menu, then Rocky O'Reilly's Irish pub, and opposite, a piss-drenched man slumped on a bench, pouring a bottle of Becherovka. Promericino, he belched into the gloaming. Turning right onto Zitna, Franz realised he was late. The film he wanted to see had started five minutes ago. He turned at the top of Vesmechka and hurried past the highlighted windows of Sexy Sauna Club and Atlas Cabaret, all red and gold curtains and ornate balconies. On display was the night's fair. Torsos, slowly gyrating, heavy breasts served up against panes of glass, thighs flexing, gluteals glistening, oil slicked and marinated. Mm. Insect-repelling chemical approximations of rose, geranium and citronella wafted down to nauseate at street level. Next, the steakhouse. and then the pink facade of Darling Cabaret, the largest and best, with sometimes up to 150 girls. A perplexing accolade. Franz left the street and turned into the old shopping arcade, heading for the cool marble darkness of the cinema.
As the first ever public tasting session of a lab-grown burger is being prepared by Professor Mark Post and his team at Maastricht University, Susanna Wirth and Carlos Monleon Gendal went to meet speculative designer and graduate of the RCA's Design Interactions course, James King. His project, Dressing the Meat of Tomorrow, is now in the permanent collection at MoMA in New York. So I'm James King, I'm founder and director of a company called Science Practice. I work with scientists and doctors in biomedical science and I provide design services. Uh, that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years. Yeah, I think speculative designer sums up what I do quite well. It's designed for potential futures or for what-if questions. It's thinking about what might happen if a particular development in science or technology takes hold more widely and what the world will be like. So James graduated from Design Interactions at the RCA in 2006. In 2006, yeah. He started work on dressing the meat of tomorrow in his second year. Yeah, that was, I think that was the first project that I did when Tony Dunn and Fiona Raby joined mm-hmm. the course. It was actually, it was a brief that, that Tony and Fiona set, and uh, I took it on to be the subject matter of my final project for the show. The project was about in vitro cultured meat, which is uh, a real technology that allows you to take a small sample of animal tissue and grow it uh, separate from the original animal's body. There's an artist called Oren Katz who really inspired that, that work. He was one of the first people to take this technology, which is kind of pioneered in tissue science, tissue engineering, so it'd be used in a medical way to grow cultures of cells for applying to wounds, that kind of application. And he took it and really applied it to meat production and did a performance, I think, in France where he took some frog cells and grew them on a, on a scaffold. And then rather than, you know, patching up a frog with it, he turned it into a meal and invited a group of people together and they ate it. And that, surprisingly, is the first time that's ever been done. The way that an artist like Oren treats that technology, it's about performance, it's about spectacle, it's about kind of the... The viscerality of it, you know, it's, it doesn't look very nice. Mm-hmm. It has that kind of weird Frankenstein otherness about it. And well, how did that meal go? How did it go down? Um, I think not many people swallowed. Yeah, so I don't think it went <laughs> it down very down. well. <laughs> and, you yourself? Uh, no, I haven't. No. But the project that I did was kind of the opposite. Even though it dealt with the same technology and the same subject matter, I made the work that I produced in a fake food factory in Walthamstow out of plastic, so completely, you know, didn't, didn't deal with anything in the lab at all. For dressing the meat of tomorrow, James presented his designed piece of meat as a model made from fibreglass reinforced polyester. It's a delicate slice in two distinct halves, a pink oval with thin lines stretching across, and an ornate whitish part with patterning rather like a sliver of brain. It wasn't really about, you know, doing it for real. It was just really about imagining what would happen if that technology became real at some time in the future and looking at the aesthetics of it, how it might look and how it might live in a restaurant or in a more everyday context. And in a way, that's a completely different set of questions because Oren is bringing it to life today. That's exactly what I'm not doing. It's saying, well, tomorrow, what would it be like if it was accepted culturally? You know, what would we have to assume about meat to be different? 
I think if I describe the way the technology works, then I can describe the way the project works. So the technology requires you to take a small sample of animal tissue. You need cells which will grow and divide to form new tissue cells. Stem cells are obviously the best for that. If you cut open, say, a, a sheep bone or a cow bone, and you can grab some of the cells which are found in the marrow, and you put those into what's called fetal calf serum, which is not very nice stuff. It's actually taken from a newborn calf straight from the womb, and you suck all of the juices out of it, mm. uh, all of the blood, all of the serum that's inside, and the reason why you need a newborn calf is that it hasn't had time to develop any of its own antibodies, so it doesn't have an immune system. And so in its blood, there's nothing which would attack any alien cells. Right. It's full of nutrients, but obviously it's not a very nice type of substance from the way it's produced. So once you've got your cells and they're in the serum, then they will divide and grow. And um, you grow them on what's called a scaffold, which provides them with a structure. So they go in these bioreactors where there's a constant flow of this serum and the medium that it grows in. And then you leave it for a few weeks and then hopefully you'll get like a little form of jellyfied meat. So the assumptions I made was that that basic process becomes vegetarian friendly. So you find a substitute for this fetal calf serum and any other animal products that you might use. Find some way to grow it in a larger format, so you find some way of scaling up production. And you find some way of doing it cheaper and in a more humane way than we currently farm meat. So those are the kind of three assumptions I made. And then once you make those assumptions, you can then ask the question, you know, how much should it cost? Who would buy it? Um, what would it look like? Because you're not limited to anatomy, you're not limited to size and shape and you're not limited to the aesthetics because you're defining those completely. The, the aesthetics of dressing the meat of tomorrow are quite uh, intriguing. Where did you derive the forms from? There are two pieces uh, in dressing the meat of tomorrow. There's one piece which assumes that it will look like how it looks in the Petri dish today, so it will be this kind of formless, jelly-like substance. And there's another piece which assumes that it's had some design put into it. And those aesthetics are really derived from, again, from animals. But I, I kind of imagined that you would base it on the shapes of animal anatomy, but you would choose the more interesting shape. So it wouldn't just be large hunks of meat, as you might find from the, the shank or the, the leg or the, the back or anything like that. It would be the more intricate patterns that you find in the abdomen and the brain. So in the initial video on, on your website... You seem to reference Theo van Desburg's abstraction of a cow, where a very unfamiliar shape of a cow turns into a more familiar rendering of a cow. So that video is based on uh, Roy Lichtenstein's painting. So uh, Roy Lichtenstein <laughs> had had three paintings called uh, Cow Gone Abstract. And the first painting is of a, a cartoon mm -hmm. sort of cow done in Roy Lichtenstein style. And then the second painting abstracts it, and the third painting it becomes more or less just line and plane on a, mm -hmm. on a flat two-dimensional surface. And I just thought that was a quite nice analogy of, of what would happen visually to, to this kind of notion of what a cow was, because it becomes less like a cow and more like basic functions kind of replicated in, in some kind of machine or some kind of factory. You mentioned the enjoyment of tasting your meat, or what is the joy of, of eating your meat? Um, I mean, I eat meat. I wouldn't say it's kind of a joy for me to, to eat meat, but it's, it's, it is something that I do. Interestingly, Oren Katz is a vegetarian. And so are quite a few other artists that work in the space. There's a guy called John O'Shea, who's doing a really interesting project to culture a, a football using pig's bladder cells. Footballs used to be made from pig's bladders, and he's growing a football from, from pig's bladder cells. I mean, I think it's just something that we've, we've done. It's, it's built into culture, isn't it? You know, it's difficult to imagine life without farms and without meat products. A big part of your project seemed to be how people in the future might remember this animal and how they might relate that to this thing on their plate. On your website, you ask a question, Will there be anything to remind us what this stuff is, or at least what it used to be? 
I think the other assumption I made was that, you know, animal farming's no longer, you don't have cows in the same way that we would do. And I think if we weren't farming cows, I don't think that they would exist in the same way that we have them today. I mean, it's not like they fit into Britain in a kind of natural setting with herds of cows roaming freely. I mean, you do in certain countries, but I think not here. But that's a pretty radical change, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah, it's a huge change. Kind of, I think like the Olympic opening ceremony, which was supposed to sum up Pastoral this Britain. country, and it was... It was animals roaming a field. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so you're, you're, you're right. I mean, the whoever this chef is producing this this dish is kind of looking back with nostalgic eyes at old anatomical textbooks, trying to guess what cow meat might be like, given that he hasn't seen the real stuff for many decades or something. I think he'd want to make it really realistic and really, you know, like simulate... I think the aesthetics are derived from a kind of a clumsy attempt to do that. You know, someone with access to data from an MRI scanner that's been stored in some hard disk for several years and, or, or, you know, tracing from an old anatomy textbook or something like that. The benefit I've had from actually working with scientists more closely and being in the lab and, and getting hands-on with these types of technologies, thanks to people like Oran Katz, is that you realise what's easy, what's difficult, what's possible, what's not, what's plausible, what's implausible. And, you know, as designers doing this more speculative type of work, I don't think we should base our work purely on what's possible and plausible, because things always change. But I think there are things which are more imminent and things which are further away. Until someone produces a synthetic alternative, which is cheaper to produce, I can't imagine it becoming a cheaper, more efficient source of food. What are the, the main motivations behind in vitro, vitro meat, or why, why are people interested in pursuing the, this technology? I think... Um, this, this kind of peta holy grail of being able to produce meat either for vegetarians or, or basically it would advance the argument that you don't need to kill any living being in order to, to eat. You know, if you took that argument further, that would make it less and less acceptable to rear animals for food production, which I think is an interesting argument. Philosophers like Peter Singer would probably take that argument even further to even more of an extreme. But I think that feels quite unrealistic <laughs> at the moment, and I'd be interested to see if it's possible. Meat man? Really? I got jaws like a bear trap, teeth like a razor, got a made tag, tongue with a scent in the taste I'm born out of Texas, all the land of beef. Never came to Mother Green, it's on the hill, and I got meat and the meat man. You've been listening to Car, audio from the RCA. Hear past episodes at rcaaudio.co.uk or email us at car at rca.ac.uk. I done plucked me a chicken in Memphis, mama. I still got feathers in my teeth.